Chapter Twenty One of Meg of Mystery Mountain. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Chapter Twenty One Meg as Benefactress. Dan and the children had gone on a hike, and Jane, being quite alone, rose and confronted the mountain girl with a cold stare that would have caused Meg at another time to have whirled about and departed but for the sake of the other three she was willing to be treated unkindly. "'Miss Abbott,' she said, holding up the newspaper and pretending not to notice the unfriendly expression, "'there is news in here which may be of great importance to you. May I show it to you or your brother?' Suddenly Jane found herself trembling from some unnamed fear. Instantly she had thought of the taxes. Perhaps, without really being conscious of it, she had read the word somewhere on that outheld paper." She sank back into her chair, saying almost breathlessly, "'Dan isn't here. What is it, Miss Heger? Is something wrong?' The mountain girl pointed to the paragraph and was amazed at the effect the reading of it had on the proud girl. There was an expression of terror in the dark eyes that were lifted. "'Oh, what shall I do? What shall I do?' she implored helplessly. "'Our fathers gave us the money. He told us the taxes must be paid. But I thought another two weeks would do as well as now.' Dan did not know the need of haste. Meg, seeing that the girl, unused to deciding matters of importance, was more helpless than even Julie would have been, felt a sudden compassion for her, and so she said, "'If you can get the money to the county seat before five o'clock, you will not lose your property.' A dull flush suffused the dark face. "'I—I I haven't the money. I—I I borrowed it for something I wanted. It was in that letter that Julie gave you this morning to mail.' Then, looking up eagerly, hopefully, "'Miss Heger, perhaps you forgot to post it. Oh, how I hope that you did!' But the mountain girl shook her head. "'I sent it by Mr. Bentley to the eastbound train, which was due about noon. He said that he would put it in the mail-car himself.' "'Then there is nothing I can do.' The proud girl burst into sudden tears. "'Father has lost everything but our home in the east. And now, now, I have been the cause of losing the cabin he so loved.' Lifting a tear-stained face at the girl who was watching her, troubled and thoughtful, she implored, "'Oh, isn't there something I can do? If I tell them I will pay it in two weeks when my birthday money comes, won't that do as well as now?' Meg shook her head. "'No,' she said. "'This is final. They notified your father some time ago.' Jane nodded hopelessly. "'Oh, if only brother were here! But the worry would start him to cough him!' Again the girl, who scorned tears in others, began to sob helplessly. How vain and foolish she had been to want that necklace, hoping that it would make her appear more beautiful in the eyes of Jean Sawyer. Meg stood for one moment in thought. Then she said, "'Miss Abbott, find your papers. Have them ready for me when I return. I will try to save your place.' With that she turned and ran back to her pony, leapt upon it, and galloped away out of sight up around the bend. "'What does she mean?' Jane sat almost as one stunned. For a moment, and then the command of the mountain girl recalled itself to her. She arose and went indoors to locate the papers their father had given Dan. These being fastened with a rubber band into a neat packet, she held closely while she ran out to the brook, calling Dan's name frantically. But there was no response. She soon heard the musical yodeling which had so filled her heart with the wrath of short half-hour before. Now it was to her a sound sweeter than any she had ever heard. It brought a faint hope that her father's cabin might yet be saved. Down the stone steps she went, holding out the papers. Then, for the first time, she thought of something. But the money! I haven't any to give you! 
I am loaning you twenty-five dollars from my savings, but don't hope too much. It will be very hard for me to make Scarsburg by five o'clock, but for Julie's sake I'll do my best. For Julie's sake? The words drifted back to Jane as she stood watching the pony hurtling itself down the mountain road until a cloud of dust hid it from view. She, Jane, had never done anything for Julie's sake, and why, pray, should this mountain girl loan her own money to strangers who might never repay her, and risk her life and that of her pony, as it was evident she was doing? Jane looked out into the heat-shimmering valley. Many times the mountain road appeared to her as it zigzagged down to Redford's. Again and again a rushing cloud of dust assured her that Meg was still racing with time. Returning to the porch, Jane sank down, deep in the chair, keenly conscious of her own uselessness. "'Oh, what a vain, worthless creature I am! I don't see why Dan cares for me so much, why he risked his health that I might finish my course in that seminary where everyone, everything, conspired to make me a more proud and helpless.' Then before her arose a mental picture— meg clear-eyed eager to be of service in an hour of need and more than that capable of being and she jane had snubbed her for julie's sake the mountain girl had preserved her desire to be neighbourly unable to sit still jane went again to the brook to call but the children with dan had climbed higher than usual and had found so much to interest them that they had failed to note the passage of time there was no answer to her calling jane went back to the house and because she had to do something she had entirely lost interest in her book she wandered out into the kitchen she saw on the table a pan of potatoes with a paring knife near hardly knowing what she was about jane took the pan to the porch and seating herself on the step she began most awkwardly to pare she had heard her grandmother say that the peeling should be as thin as possible as the goodness was next to the skin it took a very long time for Jane to pare half a dozen potatoes, and she had almost resolved not to tell Dan about the taxes until she knew the worst or the best, when she heard him hallooing from the brook. Placing the pan on the step, she ran to meet him. One glance at her white, startled face assured him more than words could have done that something of an unusual nature had occurred during their absence. Catching her in his arms, he felt her body tremble. He led her back to the porch before he asked— "'Jane, tell me, what has happened? Has that slinking coyote frightened you?' Julie and Gerald, wide-eyed and wondering, crowded near. "'Dan,' Jane clung to him as she had not done since the long-ago childhood, when she had so often been frightened and had turned to him for protection. "'Please send the children away. I want to tell you alone.' Gerald needed no second bidding. "'Come on, Julie,' he called. "'Let's go and practice on our pine-tree rifle range.' He was carrying the small gun, and so away they raced. Although they were almost overcome with natural curiosity, neither of them desired to stay where they were not wanted. When they were gone, Jane leaned against her brother and told the story between sobs that was almost hysterical. "'Oh, brother, brother, if only this cabin is saved for Dad, I will never, never again be so vain and selfish. Oh, Dan, tell me, say that you think Meg will reach the county seat before five. The lad found that his heart was filled with conflicting emotions. The scorn his sister's pride and selfishness would have aroused in him at another time was crowded out by pity for her. She had suffered enough without his rebuke. Then there was the dread that the cabin might not be saved, for well he knew the sorrow its loss would bring to his father. But, above all, there was something in his heart he had never felt before, a warm glow of admiration for a girl who was not his sister. 
What he said was, Jane, dear, quiet yourself. We can do nothing but wait. And a long, long wait they were destined to have. The hands of the clock moved slowly to four, then five, and then six. Jane's poor efforts at the paring the potatoes received much comment from the children alone in the kitchen. Gee, Gerald confided to his small sister, something must have happened if it upset Jane so much she didn't know what she was doing, or she wouldn't have tried to pare potatoes and stain those lily hands of hers. Try as the small boy might, he could not keep the scorn out of his voice, but Julie was more forgiving. Jerry, don't be too hard on Jane. She acts awful worried about something. I don't believe she saw a bear or anything that scared her. I think it's something in her heart that's troubling her. I think she's sorry about something she's done. Well, she ought to be. The boy was less sympathetic. She's been dirt mean to us ever since she's come home from that high-faulting seminary. And what's more, she's none too good for Dan. I'd hate her, that's what, if she wasn't my sister, and if she didn't look just like our mother. But even for all of that, I'm going to let myself hate her hard if she isn't better to you, Jewel. The way she lets you do the work, and she's setting around her reading novels to keep her hands white so folks will admire them. Aren't you the same family as she, and shouldn't your hands be kept just as white? Tell me that now. The boy, who was holding the bread-knife, whirled it with such indignant expression on his freckled face that Julie laughed merrily, which broke the spell. Oh, Jerry, you do look so funny. If I had time, I'd find some riggins to make you a pirate. It could be done easy, cause your face looks just like their pictures and that knife would do for a dagger. Meanwhile, on the front porch, the two who had long watched and waited were getting momentarily more anxious, and often Dan walked to the top of the steep stairwell, down which he gazed at the zigzagging mountain road. At last he saw a pony climbing, oh, so slowly, as though it could hardly take another step, and at its side there walked a girl. Dan leaped back to the porch and snatched up his hat. Jane, he said, you and the children have your supper. I'm going up to the Heger cabin and get one of their horses. Meg's pony is worn out, and I'm not going to have that brave girl walk all the way up the mountain just to serve us. Jane did not try to detain him, and the lad fairly leaped up the road to the Hager cabin. He found the trapper who had just returned from a ride over the other side of the mountain. Take this horse, he said, when he'd heard the story which fairly tumbled from Dan's mouth. Old bag of bones ain't that tired, and he's the best horse I have on the place. Then the man held out a strong hand as he said, Dan, boy, I hope my gal made it. She would, if anyone could. Dan silently returns the clasp, then he mounted the horse that was not at all what his name might suggest, but lean and wiry, as were all of the mustangs of the west, with hard muscles and a loping step that carried it down the road, shoe-footed and with great rapidity. Jane heard the halloo when he passed, but she did not stir. She felt that she could never move again until she had learnt that Muse from Meg would have for them. And Meg, far down the mountain, looked up and saw Bagger Bones, her foster father's favourite horse, descending with speed, and, believing it to be ridden by Mr. Hager, she wondered why, at that hour, he was in such haste. But at the lower turn of the road she saw that the figure on the horse was that of the lad from the east, who as yet did not know how to ride as they did in the west. Then she knew why he was coming, and for the first time in her lonely, isolated life there was a sudden warmth in her heart. She had a real friend, she knew that instinctively, and his name was Dan Abbott. End of chapter 21